Would you open your Bibles up to Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 5? Hear the word of the Lord. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations. Let's pray. Oh, Father, this morning we rejoice in the gospel of God. We praise you that you promised it beforehand through the prophets and the holy scriptures. We exalt you because it concerns your son, who is descended from David, and who is also declared to be the Son of God in power. Oh, Father, this is where our hope lies, in your Son, what he has accomplished and who he is, and who he is even now today as he is seated at your right hand and he reigns over all things. Father, we ask this morning that you would give us greater insight into your gospel this morning. It would become all the more clear in our minds. It would be refreshing in our hearts. You give us greater love for your Son who has been revealed. And Father, we ask this morning that your gospel, the proclamation of it, would be fruitful this morning in our hearts, even among the nations, as your word is preached around the world. And so, Father, we pray in your glorious Son's name. Amen. So standing at the center of the church, its, its life, its doctrine, is the gospel. It's the message that our Savior preached throughout his ministry. It's the announcement that the apostles heralded throughout the world. And it's the very treasure that has been entrusted to the church, to us. So this morning, and the next two weeks, I just want to ask the question, what is the gospel? What is this gospel that Jesus preached during his ministry that the apostles heralded, and what is this gospel that has been entrusted to us? We can just let that settle into our hearts this morning a bit. How do we explain the gospel? What does it consist of? And in the matter of the gospel, we need to have clarity because the gospel is so important. It is the center of the life of the church. And so when we look into the scriptures, the Apostle Paul is refreshingly clear on the matter of the gospel. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And he goes on in 1 Corinthians 15 to give a, a great summary statement of the gospel. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, 
that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. And so Paul guides us this morning with a, with a steady hand. The Gospel is an announcement. It's, it's good news and it concerns a person, namely the Lord Jesus, and what this person has accomplished for His people through His ministry. And so the Gospel is this unfolding, this revelation of who the Son is and what the Son has done. And even more than this, the Gospel is the offer of this Savior, Christ Jesus, to sinful people. We can be reminded of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So as we think about the gospel this morning, if we are to find any benefit of redemption, we have to go to that person, Christ. We need the whole Christ to be whole people. And so Christ and his ministry have to control the gospel and its proclamation. John Calvin understood the fundamental logic of how the gospel directs us, and he teaches in his writings us how we are to explain and apply the gospel to our own hearts by tying every single benefit of the gospel to the person of Jesus. He makes this point that everything good we have comes from the hands of our crucified and risen Savior. I'm going to read an extended quote from him this morning uh, that, that moves us in this direction. So he writes, We see that our whole salvation and all its parts are comprehended in Christ. We should therefore take care not to drive the least portion of it from anywhere else. If we seek salvation, we are taught by the very name of Jesus that it is of Him. If we seek any other gifts of the Spirit, they will be found in His anointing. If we seek strength, it lies in His dominion. If purity, in His conception. If gentleness, it appears in His birth. If we seek redemption, it lies in His passion. If acquittal in His condemnation, if remission of the curse in His cross, if satisfaction in His sacrifice, if purification in His blood, if reconciliation in His descent into hell, if mortification of the flesh in His tomb, if newness of life in His resurrection, if immortality in the same, if inheritance of a heavenly kingdom in His entrance into His kingdom." if protection, if security, if abundant supply of all blessings in His kingdom, if untroubled expectation of judgment in the power given to Him to judge. In short, since rich store of every kind of good abounds in Him, let us drink our fill from this fountain and from no other. So our aim this week as we dive into the gospel in the next two is to go to this well that Calvin describes, to go to this rich store and find every good in Christ. And we do this, as Calvin directs us, by going to Christ clothed in the garments of His gospel. So our work then is to unfold the glorious gospel. And there are many ways we can go about unfolding the gospel, but a, a very helpful way to frame it in our minds is found in the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed gives us a a working outline, a punch list of how we can proclaim Christ and how we can understand Christ as Savior. And so the middle portion of the Creed reads this, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, 
He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. And so this morning we're going to take up the first three lines of the creed. The creed teaches us the subject of the gospel. Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God. And the beauty of the Apostles' Creed this morning is that it places its doctrine of Christ in the midst of a sweeping story. The Creed is not just a bare statement of facts. There is a movement and direction shaping the Creed. There is a plot to the Creed if we read it carefully. We didn't read the whole Creed this morning, but the Creed begins with these words. It begins with creation. I believe in God the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. We didn't read the end of the Creed, but the Creed ends like this, pointing to the future. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. And so we see the Creed moves us from creation in the first line to resurrection in the last, from life, the beginning of life, to life everlasting. And in the heart of this movement, the heart of this sweeping story from creation to resurrection, stands in the middle Jesus Christ and his gospel. The very bridge that moves the storyline forward is the person the creed confesses. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. So the creed is teaching us here. It reveals that if we're to know Christ in his fullness in his identity, if we are to grasp the breadth of the gospel, if we are to penetrate his identity, we must do so in light of the greater story. We can only make sense of the incarnate Son of God within the flow of redemptive history, the story that is moving from creation to resurrection. And this is not only a point the creed makes, but when we go to the scriptures, this is how the apostles describe who Jesus is. There's this foundational logic moving in the Scriptures. So we can go to Romans chapter 1 this morning. We already read these verses, and I'll read them again. Paul explains his gospel to the church in Rome. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who is descended from David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So integral to Paul's proclamation of the gospel, this is what he's doing to the church in Rome. He's introducing this gospel that he's been entrusted. Integral to this is his understanding of the wider story of Scriptures. And he makes clear to the church in Rome that the gospel that he preaches is not something new. He's not making this up, but what he preaches in the gospel has been promised by the prophets of old. And according to Paul, without these prophets, without the wider story, his gospel would make little sense. It would have little meaning. In fact, the Son of God would be incomprehensible without these prophets. And we can go to 1 Corinthians 15 as well this morning. We read that earlier. And we hear this refrain in Paul's explanation of the gospel. He says, in accordance with the Scriptures. In accordance with the Scriptures. And this is fundamental to all apostolic preaching of the Gospel. We can go to Peter's explanation of the Gospel in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10-11. through 11. 
Peter speaks, he says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So where did the apostles get this understanding? Where did they get this fundamental logic? Well, they get it from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Jesus derived his identity and mission from the wider story. Luke chapter 24, verses 25 through 27. And he said to them, Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And we should let the weight of these scriptures fall upon us because they have implications for us. We cannot simply be New Testament-only Christians. That would have made no sense to the Apostle Paul or the Lord Jesus because it's the law of the prophets and the writings that give sense and shape and scope to the meaning of the gospel. Understanding or declaring the gospel without the wider story is like constructing a house without a foundation. That house will just not last. It will have no permanence. It will fall apart. And so too will our gospel if it is not founded upon the wider story, the law, the prophets, and the writings. And so this morning, if we are to have any hope at penetrating into the glory of what the Apostles' Creed confesses of Jesus, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, if we are to worship the eternally begotten Son, made manifest in flesh, if we were to answer some of these questions raised by the Incarnation, if if we were to go to this well that Calvin speaks of, we have to press into the wider story. So that's our aim this morning, to press into the wider story, to understand the Incarnation of the Son of God. So our understanding of the Son of God incarnate begins then not in the pages of the New Testament, but we can go all the way back to the very beginning because this is where the foundation of the incarnation is laid. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1, 31. And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. In the first chapter of Genesis, God's generosity overflows in creation. All things are made by God, seas, oceans, lakes, plains, valleys, all the animals, elephants, cows, monkeys, all things are made by God, and they are all good. And there is an intention, there is even a direction in creation, it's going somewhere. God makes all things for a purpose, and that purpose is to declare His praise and His eternal worth. Psalm 19 helps us interpret the creation account. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. At the center of God's intention and purpose to glorify his name is this creature that God forms from the dust of the ground. This creature that God makes is unlike the rest of creation. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Men and women, mankind, flesh, blood, and bones is to be a vehicle of spreading and reflecting the knowledge and the worth of God to all creation. Man is to have dominion over all the earth. They are to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. 
And so the first pages of Genesis reveal that humanity is not an incidental part of God's design and intention. God is the sovereign covenant Lord who creates all things. And Adam, as his image, we could even argue as his very son, is to rule under the covenant Lord and for his Lord's ends and designs. Adam is to be an agent for God's kingdom. Psalm 8 helps us understand the position of man in God's creation. Psalm 8 says, You have made him, speaking of man, a little lower than heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Or we could sum up mankind's directive in God's creation in a theological way. Westminster Shorter Catechism says, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So the storyline is clear in creation. God has a design and intention, the spreading of His glory. And man in this plan is to spread that glory over the face of the earth as a mirror reflecting the worth and the weight of God to all creation. And man is to do this by filling the earth, subduing it, and having dominion over it. But as the story advances, we come to Genesis Chapter 3, we meet the scene of the fall. And here we learn that Adam, instead of serving and obeying his sovereign Lord, commits treason and joins in with the serpent. Adam, as the son of God, disobeys his father. Instead of relishing his crown of glory, he, he casts it aside for a crown of unrighteousness. He changes his robes of holiness for the defilement of flesh. And he labors not for the promise of life, but he receives the wages of death. And we have to understand Adam. Adam in his sin did not act just as a private individual. But Paul explains in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Paul's teaching us that in Adam's sin, we're all represented. Adam acted as our corporate head. When he sinned, he plunged the whole human race into sin and rebellion. We can conceive of Adam as the root and humanity as the plant. Or we can conceive of Adam as the father and humanity as his offspring. And when we think of the root and the plant, the father and his offspring, the fruit of Adam's rebellion becomes very evident. We see it in the pages of Genesis. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil Continually. We can go to the pages of the Psalms. Psalmist says, They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And we see it in the pages of the New Testament, in the Apostolic Proclamation. Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And we see Adam's story not just written in the pages of the Scripture, in Genesis and Psalms and the New Testament, but we see it writ large in our own hearts, in our own lives. As Adam took counsel with the serpent, so too, in sin, our minds have become corrupted. We think not the thoughts of God. 
As Adam went to that tree and ate and sinned, so do we indulge ourselves in unrighteousness. Our passions have become corrupted and inverted. As Adam in the garden disregarded the word of God, our consciences and sin have become seared. We willfully disregard the law of the Lord. As Adam joined in rebellion with the serpent and sin, we too follow the prince of the power of the air, as Paul explains in Ephesians 2. As Adam declared war on his maker, we too are hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. As Adam forfeited the glorious presence of God in sin, so do we walk in exile from this glorious and good God. As sin invaded through Adam's disobedience and brought death, so too sin has invaded our existence, and death permeates all that we do. So we have to ask this morning, what is to come of God's plan? Can mankind be redeemed in God's plan? Can we fulfill God's intentions for us? And the answer is, in Adam, it is impossible to fulfill God's plans. A new man must come. And we can reason this way this morning. If the root of the plant has become corrupted, if the root of the plant has been thoroughly destroyed by disease, if it has become rotten, it simply cannot give life to that plant. That plant will never be healthy. It will never give forth good fruit. If the root is bad, it doesn't matter if you go to that plant and you prune its leaves. It doesn't do any good if you go to that plant and you add fertilizer all around it or you cultivate it and stir up the ground. It will do no good if you water it day and night. Rather, a radical work is in order for this plant. The gardener must come and he must extract the corrupted root from the ground. He must dig it up and then it must be destroyed. It is not possible to have a healthy and flourishing plant with a diseased and corrupted root in the ground. And this brings us to see the dire situation of mankind and sin. We can try to trim our leaves. We can try to cover up our bad fruit. We can try to move around our soil from here to there. But the problem goes deeper than this. It goes down to the very root. We cannot evolve from our sinful situation. It's not going to get better over time. We cannot be reformed. We cannot think more positive thoughts about our situation. The scriptures are clear. As long as we are in the family of Adam, there can be no life in us. As long as we draw from this diseased root, there can be no flourishing for mankind. As long as we are under his wicked headship, there can never be any flourishing. As Paul says, in Adam, all die. And this sets the stage to see the absolute necessity of the incarnation of the Son of God. In the midst of this story, of failure, the glory of the Apostles' Creed begins to shine forth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. What precious news to consider in light of this wide story. The Creed teaches us the eternally begotten Son, God Himself, has taken flesh. God has not let creation languish in futility and corruption, but God has come. And the Incarnation preaches good news to us. There is a second Adam, a second man. There is a new root. There is a new covenant head. There is a new humanity. God's creational design and intention, which we see in Genesis chapter 1, will go forward through God the Son incarnate. 
For Christ is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. So we must see this morning where Adam failed in the garden, the incarnate Son of God succeeded in every way. Adam corrupted the flesh due to sin, but what has Christ done? Christ, by the Spirit, has sanctified human flesh. Adam sinned, and he brought the reign of death. Christ, by his obedience, ushers in the reign of the life, reign of life and the Spirit. Adam disobeyed the law of God. What has Christ said? Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Adam faced temptation, and he complied. He gave in. He should have killed that wicked serpent. Christ, in the face of temptation, said, Get behind me, Satan. Adam brought curse to creation from that tree. Christ lifted the curse by hanging upon the tree. Adam brought forth children of wrath. Christ has brought forth the children of God. Adam reigns and reigned over a kingdom of murderers, adulterers, thieves, and blasphemers. But Christ rules over a kingdom of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And Paul makes this great comparison. He says, in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. And the hope of the gospel then is this, that God has come, the incarnate Son has arrived. And the hope of the gospel is that we can be united to this second Adam, that we can be grafted into this life-giving root, that we can come under the covenant headship of Christ, that being united to Christ in his death, we die to sin and the law, that being united to Christ in his resurrection, we share in the life of the Spirit, that being united to the incarnate Son of God, we truly can become human again. We can truly live out God's design for us to reflect his weight and his worth and his glory to all creation like a mirror. And that we might even be remade in the image of Christ, who is the image of God. So the creed is faithful this morning. It tells us the gospel, the good news. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. In this story, the good news of these words only makes sense in light of the bigger story. The logic of the incarnation comes out in light of the scriptures. And as we leave this big story this morning, as we leave the creed this morning, we need to leave doing two things. First, we should leave in worship today. The Apostles' Creed declares to us wonderful good news. It declares mystery and wonder and glory. God has taken flesh. Athanasius, a, a church father, writes in the first, fourth century about the incarnation of the Son of God, and he says this, In short, such and so many are the Savior's achievements that follow from his incarnation, that trying to number them is like gazing at the open sea and trying to count the waves. When we think of the incarnation of the Son of God, our minds should be filled with wonder. And we should never lose our wonder of who God is and what he has done in the gospel. Second, while the creed tells us of the Son, his humanity, his birth, this is not all the creed does. The creed calls us to action this morning. It calls us to believe. 
It calls us to entrust ourselves to the incarnate Son of God. It beckons us to true life. It directs us, as Calvin said, we should take care not to derive the least portion of our salvation from anywhere else. Let us drink our fill from this fountain and from no other. So let us come. Come to the incarnate Son of God and drink and drink our fill. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we worship you this morning. Your gospel is the good news that we need to hear. In Adam, all die. So also in Christ, all shall be made alive. And this is our precious hope, that Christ has indeed come. He has taken the form of a man, born under the law. And he has redeemed us, redeemed us from the curse. He has sanctified human flesh. We have hope in him. So, Father, would you refresh our hearts today in Christ Jesus? We pray in his name. Amen.